Welcome to the podcast of New Covenant Church in Albuquerque, where we focus on the Bible, faith, and life issues. We hope this podcast will be helpful to you on your faith journey. Now, here's our message. It's a blessing to be with you, and I know that's the obligatory start to any guest speaker's talk, but I really mean that, hanging out in the green room, whatever you want to call it. Um, seeing folks that I've known for 25, 30 years, seeing familiar faces, some new faces too, but this is my city. I was born and raised here, so, um, and my house is like a stone's throw from the church, so truly what a blessing to be with the people of God this morning. And too bad so many people are riding Harleys, right? It's okay. The people who are here, supposed to be here, are here. Well, since next Sunday, June 5th, will be the day that churches everywhere observe and celebrate Pentecost, I thought it would be fitting for us this morning to turn to Acts chapter 2, where we read about the first Christian Pentecost. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. And I don't know who's teaching next week, but I hope I'm not stealing their thunder by teaching a message on Pentecost, because technically... June 5th is when this is celebrated. But here we go, Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. We'll pop around a little bit, but that's going to be the foundation for this morning. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? It's a good question. What does this mean? Pentecost was a day exploding with historical significance. It was, after all, the birthday of the New Testament church. But it was also a day filled with missionary significance. The church born on this day was unmistakably a missionary church. It was a church birthed in a global context. And I believe Acts 2 makes it clear that the church was made for missions. 
The church was made to reach the nations. And since all churches that exist today, all gospel churches that is, can trace their heritage all the way back to this church, they should understand that they too are made for missions. This morning, we're going to look at three ways, I believe, that Acts 2 demonstrate that the church was made for missions. First, the church was made for movement. Now, remember in Acts chapter 1, Jesus told his followers to wait in Jerusalem until they received power from on high. He says, wait, tarry in Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Father. Acts 1 verse 4 and 5, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So we know he tells them to go. That's part of the Great Commission. But for now, he says, wait. Don't leave Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Father. Don't you love that this third person in the Trinity, Jesus calls him the promise of the Father. Wait until you receive the promised one. Well, 10 days had passed since Jesus had ascended. And suddenly on Pentecost morning, the Holy Spirit descends in a new and powerful way, and the world would never be the same. Now, take that word suddenly, and I want you to stick it in your back pocket for now because we're going to take it out later and discuss it. So do that for me right now. We're going to come back to that word. It's very important, but not yet. I want you to notice that the arrival of the Holy Spirit was announced by three signs. First, a rushing wind that filled the entire house where they were sitting. So the wind rushes into this house. Number two, flames of fire hovered over each one of their heads. And thirdly, the ability to speak in unknown languages. Now the sign of tongues gets talked about the most, right? It gets the most press. But the signs of the wind and fire folks, they're astonishing. And they reveal to us some very important things. They take us back to two Old Testament passages that are parallels. Passages where God moved into a new home. One, following Moses' dedication of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, we see God moving into the tent. His presence is manifest in the tent. And number two, following Solomon's dedication of the temple, we see a similar act of God. First, let's take a look at Moses' dedication of the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. Exodus 40, verses 34 through 48. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel." throughout all of their journeys. 
So we see this cloud, and that's a parallel to the wind filling the place where they were sitting in Acts chapter 2. And of course, we have the obvious parallel of the fire that appears as the tabernacle is at night, at nighttime during that season. So notice that when the glory of God shows up, Moses can't enter the tent of meeting. Moses dedicates the tabernacle, and Jehovah moves in, and his presence is so tangible, so thick, so weighty that Moses can't even enter the tent. The glory of God descends, and the weight of his presence is so obvious and real that Moses can't enter in. The word glory here is the Hebrew word kavod. Here's what it means. Splendor, copiousness, or weight. The weight of God shows up as his presence moves into the tabernacle. And it's so tangible that Moses can't enter. Throughout their 40-year journey in the desert, God would continue to show up in this way. His presence would be manifest as this cloudy or fiery pillar. God shows up in a similar way following Solomon's dedication of the temple. 2 Chronicles 5 and 2 Chronicles 7. I'm going to read two passages here. 2 Chronicles 5, 13 and 14, and you're going to see parallels to the dedication of the temple. It was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison, in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, and here's their song, for He is good, His steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house. The weight of God, the splendor of God shows up again, and the priest can't even enter because it's so thick. And then 2 Chronicles 7, 1 through 3, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, so Solomon also dedicates the temple, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped. And they gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. The loving kindness of God endures forever. So God's splendor shows up. It's a crisis of encounter, folks. And the people have to hit the deck. They fall to their faces. They worship. The priests, again, cannot enter because God's presence is so thick in this place, so tangible in this place, and they sing these praises. He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. We see in the tabernacle and also in the temple that God's housewarming present 
was his presence. He gives himself. He manifests his glory, his weight. His glory is made manifest by an overwhelming cloud and by fire descending from heaven. Now, these signs, most notably the hovering flames, were now present at Pentecost. Again, there's a parallel with the cloud and the wind coming in to the room in Pentecost, and of course, the fire that we see when Solomon dedicates the temple. The parallel now is the tongues of flame that rest above their heads. And what these signs portray in a powerful way and I just love this, is that God had taken up residence in a new temple, the church. God is giving a housewarming present. Only this time He's not filling a building. He's filling a people. He's filling us. Isn't that beautiful? God's mediating presence would no longer dwell in a place, folks, not in a tent or a temple or any other type of building. It would dwell and reside in a people, and worship of God would no longer be tied to a specific place, but to a people. What's going on here? Verse 12, what does this mean? That's a great question. When we read about Pentecost, we should say, as they did, what does this mean? Here's what it means. The temple of God was being franchised and mobilized for the Great Commission. God moved into His people so that His people could move out. You can't move temples around, at least not very easily. People can go anywhere. God is franchising and mobilizing His church for the Great Commission. You see, we learn in the Old Testament that the invitation was to the nations to come and see. God's plan all along was to redeem people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. This doesn't just show up in the New Testament. I wish I could do a teaching just on that. From Genesis to Revelation, there is this meta-narrative of God on mission to call out worshipers from every nation, tribe, and tongue. But in the Old Testament, the invitation was to the nations to come and see because they would hear about God's hand, His mighty outstretched arm, and they would come to the temple to worship. Listen to Solomon's prayer of dedication for the very temple that we've been talking about, 1 Kings 8, 41-43. Likewise, so Solomon's dedicating the temple, as I mentioned earlier, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your namesake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When the foreigner comes and prays towards this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you. In order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. So Solomon dedicates the temple, and he understands this temple isn't just for Israel. It's for all nations. But the invitation at the time is to the nations. When the foreigner comes, there was a place called the outer courts where the foreigners 
who'd heard about God's great name and his power could come and worship. He dedicates the temple and he says, God, do all that the foreigner asks so that the whole world may know that you are God. There's a God in Israel. But folks, now fast forward to Pentecost. A new age has begun. It's the church age. And so rather than inviting the nations to come and see the new temple, the church is commanded to go, and the church is empowered to go and tell the nations. The birth of the church represented a new age. Come and see had become go and tell. No longer is the invitation to the nations to come and see. The command is to the church to go and tell the nations. The church was made for movement, not to be stationary to take the gospel to the whole world, and Pentecost signified this. Secondly, the church was made for harvest. So it was made to move, and the church was made for harvest. Acts 2.1, when the day of Pentecost had come. Why did Jesus choose the day of Pentecost as the day that he would pour out his spirit on his disciples? Why that day? God does nothing willy-nilly. There's a reason he chose this day. And I think at least one of those reasons is that Pentecost is a feast of harvest. Think Jewish Thanksgiving, folks. Exodus 23 tells us about this feast of harvest. God speaking to his people. Exodus 23, 16. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. What beautiful imagery. Inaugurating the church on Pentecost was symbolic and significant. What better way to foretell of the ingathering of souls that would come through his church than to use a festival celebrating harvest. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit in this new and extraordinary way was meant for witness, folks, and for world evangelization, for the harvesting or ingathering of souls. And that's exactly what happened on this day. Read on today in your own time. Read the entirety of Acts chapter 2. The people are bewildered by this act of God, this manifest presence of God when they hear these tongues and Peter gives an incredible message. He quotes the prophet Joel and he says, we're not drunk like you think we are. This day was testified about long before it came. God is pouring out his spirit and Peter proceeds to preach the gospel and 3,000 souls are harvested that day and brought in to relationship with the living God. Verse 12, that's another important verse. Again, right, what does this mean? When we read about Pentecost, because it's such a strange thing, we need to ask the question, what does this mean? Why did he choose Pentecost as the day he would pour out his spirit in this extraordinary way? I believe that the harvest of souls that happened on this day reveals the primary purpose that God has sent his spirit to dwell in us namely the harvesting of souls, bringing people to faith in Christ. And I think it's unfortunate that for many, Pentecostal power 
has become more associated with speaking in tongues than with the harvest of world missions. We see here that the church was made for harvest. Thirdly, and I've already hit on this, but I want to draw it out even more right now. The church was made to be multi-ethnic. Acts 2, I'm going to read verses 4 through 8 again. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered as they heard people speaking in their native tongue and they were amazed. And they said, aren't these Galileans? How can we hear them speaking in our own language? What's going on here? The disciples were granted supernatural ability to speak in unlearned languages. They were proclaiming the mighty works of God, the gospel in the languages represented by the people there. So this wasn't gibberish. This wasn't merely a miracle of hearing. They spoke diverse languages. What does this mean? I believe it's a foreshadowing of the global, multicultural nature of the church. The use of multiple languages here signified in a vivid way the missionary purpose of the church. And this is further developed in verses 9 through 11. I won't read it, but it talks about the various people groups that were represented there. And it lists for us various ethnicities and nationalities that were present at this first Christian Pentecost. And they were people from regions north of them, south of them, east of them, and west of them. Here's what Acts 2 shows us, and we cannot miss it. Christianity, folks, is not a Jewish thing. It's not a Hebrew thing. It's not a Greek thing. It's not an American thing. The gospel is for the whole world, for people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. Remember, when Jesus commissioned us to make disciples of all nations in Matthew 28, by the way, that's only one of five commissioning statements that Jesus gave, one of five. It's the most popular, most famous. But he commissioned us to make disciples of all the nations. You probably know the verse, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me Therefore, go make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and surely I am with you always to the end of the age. He commissioned us to make disciples of all the nations. These were the marching orders of Jesus Christ. Take the gospel to every nation. Don't stop and make disciples. And this is really important because for many churches, that's where the Great Commission stops. They've domesticated the Great Commission by leaving off the object of the Great Commission, which is the nations. And when you leave off the object, you gut the mandate. And you represent God as a tribal deity that's only concerned about you. Church is made to be multi-ethnic. It's made to gather in a harvest from the nations. All the nations. In the original Greek there, in that passage in Matthew, is pantata ethne. When you see nations there, don't think geopolitical states or nation states like 
Argentina, China, Germany, Turkey, you fill in the blank here. Nations are people groups like the Berber people, the Dinka people, the Fulane people, the Kekche, the Mao Xing. They are people with distinct languages and cultures that make it hard for the gospel to spread naturally from one to the other, which is why we must take it to them. Jesus commissioned his church not only to win and to disciple individuals, but to reach people from all the different people groups in the world. To see gospel churches planted in every nation, every tribe, and every tongue, which means that the Great Commission's goal, folks, this is important, is not primarily to try and keep up with or gain the population growth rate, as awesome as that would be. It'd be great if every time there was a physical birth, we could see it offset with a spiritual new birth. But that's not what we're called to do. We're called to make steady headway in taking the gospel into every nation, tribe, and tongue. Yes, we win individuals, but we're called to do that in the context of every nation. And who portrays that? According to the Joshua Project, folks, there are 17,410 people groups on the planet today representing about, what, 8 billion souls? Is that the population? 7.8, 7.9 billion? Think of it, 17,000 distinct people groups with unique languages and cultures, 17,410 of them. 7,398 of the 17,410 folks are unreached. Collectively, those unreached groups number about 3 billion souls. And among those people groups, Jesus is unknown, he's unloved, he's unacknowledged, and he is unadored. Now, let me explain what I mean by unreached. I don't mean your neighbor here that doesn't follow Jesus. That is not an unreached person. Maybe that person is unchurched. Maybe that person has never heard a clear presentation of the gospel, but that person is not unreached because you live next door. All you got to do is cross the street. An unreached person is someone with no access to the gospel. Someone who could not hear the gospel if they wanted to. And an unreached people group is an entire people group, an ethno-linguistic grouping, where either there is no witnessing church, there is no evangelizing church, or the church is simply not strong enough to evangelize its own, its own group. Jesus is not interested in a culturally monolithic church. He wants a multi-ethnic church, and he will have it as Pentecost signifies. In fact, if we looked at Revelation 5, we get a glimpse of what the church will look like in heaven when Jesus receives the reward of his suffering. What is that reward? It is worship that is flowing forth from the hearts of redeemed people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. That's where all of history is headed. That's the great end to which all of history is headed to. We see a glimpse of the church consummated. The resolution of God's story in Revelation 5 further shows that His mission, if we're aligned with God, excuse me, our mission, if we're aligned with God, must be cross-cultural. It must be multi-ethnic. This is interesting. The church is inaugurated in a global context, as we see in Acts chapter 2, and the church is consummated in a global context, as we see in Revelation 
chapter 5. So the church was made to move. The church was made to harvest souls, neighbors and nations. And the church was made to be multi-ethnic. I want to try and bring this message home for you and show how I think it is relevant for New Covenant Church. Three things I want to point out. The power promised in Acts 1-8 when Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Folks, that power, I believe, is an extraordinary power. I think the experience promised is beyond the power of the Spirit or the indwelling of the Spirit, rather, that takes place at the new birth. Now, make no mistake, Paul tells us in Ephesians, when we believe the gospel, we were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit that guarantees your inheritance. When you trusted Jesus, when the Spirit of God was moving externally in your life and then upon your heart to believe in him, he then took up residence in you. It's a deposit that guarantees your inheritance. But if you consider the effects of the power that we see here in Acts 2 and then throughout the whole book, folks, they were clothed with power. They received power from on high. This was an extraordinary infilling. Number two. The promise that the disciples would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them in Acts 1-8 was a promise given to sustain the completion of the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. Wait in Jerusalem. You will receive power from on high and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. It's plain. The power is primarily for witness and world evangelization. It is for the harvesting of souls from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Yes, the Spirit's given to empower us for sanctification, to fill us with joy and all of those things, but it was primarily given that we might be witnesses. Power to be witnesses. The word witness there is the Greek word martis. We get our word martyr from that word. Power to lay down our lives in the proclamation of the gospel in our city, in our community, and to the ends of the earth. The context makes it plain. You're going to receive power. But it's not so that you can have a bless me club meeting. It's so that you will be my witnesses. Number three, the task of world missions is not yet complete. I already mentioned that. Over 7,000 people groups. Hard to believe today, but it's true. Numbering nearly 3 billion souls with limited or no access to the gospel. This promise of extraordinary power to sustain and carry forth the work of harvesting souls from all nations, folks, it is still valid today. History teaches us that crucial gospel breakthroughs have come because of periodic, extraordinary outpourings of the Spirit of God. Jonathan Edwards 
the leader of the Great Awakening, which took place over 200 years ago in this country, primarily on the East Coast, there was this extraordinary outpouring of the Spirit, and the church exploded. It's called the Great Awakening. And Jonathan Edwards writes this, From the fall of man to our day, the work of redemption in its effect has mainly been carried on by remarkable, extraordinary communications of the Spirit of God. Though there is a more constant influence of God's Spirit always in some degree attending His ordinances, yet the way in which the greatest things have been done towards carrying on this work always have been by a remarkable effusion, outpouring at special seasons of mercy. Edwards believed that from time to time God moved in extraordinary ways and poured out His Spirit, and this caused a growth in the Christian movement. He has throughout church history showed up in new, uncustomary, dramatic ways, and these times have been called times of renewal or revival. When God's presence shows up in such a way that it's tangible, that people hit the deck, they fall on the pavement and they worship, and they confess sin, and they're released from bondage to the things that hold them, and they're mobilized for the sake of getting the gospel to the world. And Pentecost was the first of these great outpourings on the Christian church. And folks, until the Great Commission is completed, I think we should be praying for fresh seasons of an extraordinary outpouring of the Holy Spirit to awaken us and empower us to penetrate the dark places and the final frontiers. So I mentioned this is relevant for New Covenant. Let us not come to this text, folks, this morning with just some mere academic interest in some distant, unrepeatable event. That's history. When you read Pentecost, do you think that's ancient history? Do you believe God still moves like that? Do you think He still shows up like that? In such a way that you got to hit the deck. And you say, oh God, your steadfast love endures forever. I deserve wrath, but you give me mercy. We should be believing that we have much to gain from this text. This is not some distant, unrepeatable event. The Great Commission is not yet fulfilled. He gave the Spirit so that we might be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. And because the Great Commission is not fulfilled, we should plead to God for a fresh effusion of His Spirit for the work that lies before us. This city needs a church full of the Holy Spirit. This country is darkened. The church needs the Spirit of God right now. 7,000 people, groups that know nothing of Him, 
The church needs fresh power. Suddenly, take that word out of your pocket. Suddenly, I draw your attention to that word to show that the Holy Spirit is free and He's sovereign. He does as He pleases, when He pleases. He is the Lord God Almighty. He's the third person in the Trinity. He is not bound by our timing or our technique to get His power. He moves suddenly. But I will add, then when we see him moving in the book of Acts and throughout church history, one thing is clear, folks. His people are praying when he shows up in power. His people are praying. There's a mysterious and wonderful correlation between his presence and his people's prayers. We see it in Acts. They were gathered together in one place and they were praying. And God shows up. So I know this, if we want to see an extraordinary outpouring of the Spirit on this church and in us, we got to pray. We must pray. I'm going to close by looking at Isaiah chapter 64. It's a prayer of the prophet. He asks for revival. Let me give some context to what's happening when he prays this prayer. The times were troubling. The nation was desperate. And Isaiah was fed up with the status quo. Sound familiar? They had reached a state at which only an invasion from heaven could meet their desperate need. And Isaiah knew that there was no earthly prescription for their malady. There's nothing that they could do naturally to address the trouble, to face the darkness. Only God could meet the situation. So the prophet prays and he recalls the wonders of Sinai when God visited and gave his law and revealed himself. And the prophet asks for a supernatural intervention again. And he pours out his heart in confession. This is an important part of revival. He says, our righteousness is like filthy rags before you. We are sinners in desperate need of a touch from you, God. And then he prays in Isaiah 64, Verses 1 through 3, he says, O God, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that you would burst forth from the skies and visit us, how the mountains would quake in your presence. The consuming fire of your glory would burn down the forest and boil the oceans dry. The nations would tremble before you. They would hit the deck. And your enemies would learn the reason for your fame. So it was before when you came down. For you did awesome things beyond our highest expectations. In verse 7 of the same chapter, he says this. There is no one who calls upon your name 
who rouses himself to take hold of you. Samuel's Wormer said, Isaiah gives us an incomparable definition of prayer. No one calls on your name to lay hold of you. That's prayer. I want to lay hold of you, God. What a vivid picture. Isaiah cannot take the status quo any longer. And he says, God, I'm going to seize hold of you. And I'm not going to let go until you give us your presence. And if no one else will lay hold of you, God, I will. Folks, we need a new Pentecost, do we not? Do we not? We need a fresh baptism of the Holy Spirit. We need heaven's fire to inflame us once again. I want you to close your eyes. I'm going to pray that prayer of the prophet one more time, and then we're going to worship. We're going to talk to God about his steadfast love and mercy. Oh, God, that you would burst forth from the skies and come down, that you would rend the heavens and visit us at New Covenant Church, how the mountains would quake in your presence the consuming fire of your glory would burn down the forest and boil the oceans dry. The nations would tremble before you and your enemies would learn the reason for your fame. So it was before when you came down for you did awesome things beyond our highest expectations and how the mountains quake. God, do it again. Visit us again for the sake of your glory, for the sake of the gospel spread in this dark city, in our neighborhoods, and to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This concludes today's message. We thank you so much for listening. We'd love for you to connect with us. You can do that at our website, nccabq.org. From there, you can submit any questions, feedback, and your prayer requests. nccabq.org is also where you can learn more about New Covenant Church. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters, browse our online message archive, and even tune in and watch the stream of each weekly message. We hope you'll join us. So, until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May God smile on you and gift you. May God look you full in the face and make you prosper. Have a great week.